Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome to the gathering of uh, Seven Oaks Alliance Church. And uh, hello to our online church. We love you. We pray for you. We hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm Jamie, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And so if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you and get to know you. Um, And uh, I have a couple of things to share with you, actually, first of all, before we dive into the passage today. Um, The first one, uh, they're both really, really good news. The the first one is that around this time of the year is when we usually have sort of um, paid the last bills from 2022 and that kind of thing. And and I I bring a financial update uh, to you. Um, our accountants will be working with our books and then eventually we'll get our official uh, um, stuff come from them for the AGM. So we'll talk more about it then. But the good news is we finished in the black this year, which is, it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, which is incredible uh, because, you know, things were looking a little uh, tricky towards the end of the year and uh, God was faithful and you were generous. And uh, so what that looks like is that we finish in the black with regard to 2022's uh, costs and so on and budget and and covering all of that. But if you follow the newsletter, you'll know that for about the last sort of um, six, seven, eight eight months of the year, we were um, indicating that we were carrying a debt from 2021. So 2020 and 2021 were the two sort of really COVID years, and we, were, we had some help from the government in 2020, like many organizations did. In 2021, we didn't, and we also had to put a new roof on over there, if you recall that. So it was a tricky year, and we did carry some debt. Um, but in addition to finishing in the black in, for 2022's costs, we also actually took about a third of that debt out. Uh, a big chunk, so around about 30-ish thousand dollars were taken out uh, of that debt that we were carrying. So that is absolutely remarkable. Um, and uh, there's, there's some other things I want to share with you at the AGM. We'll talk about it more uh, then. But if you have any questions, feel free to come uh, and talk to me. But, but I want to just say two things about that. Number one, uh, praise Jesus. Um, very thankful to the Lord. He always proves himself to be uh, a provider. He is trustworthy. He is good. Uh, and we have much to be thankful for. And thank you to us, the church family, who give sacrificially, who give in response to God's work in our lives, who give and understand that giving is part of our worship. And so thank you for your generosity. Uh, God provides for us, but he provides through his people. So, so thank you. Uh, the second piece I wanted to share with you is a reminder that our Soul Care Conference is coming up on uh, March 3 and 4. Uh, right here in the, ch- in the chapel, in, in the wider church building, we'll be uh, sort of spreading ar- around a little bit. Uh, registration is, is open. It's been open for about a week now, so you can go online and register, or you can come into the office uh, and register if that's easier for you. I just wanted to say um, uh, just a couple of other things about that. Um, last week, I, s- I told you that the cost to come is, is $100. That's the cost of a ticket which for a two-day conference with lunch covered and coffee and uh, materials is, is pretty good. We've tried to keep it as low as possible, but we do need to cover our costs. But I also said that the last thing I want is that the price of a ticket to be a barrier for anyone coming to the conference because it is so... Uh, potentially transformational for people. So, uh, we, so I want to just announce to you that we have created a bursary program. 
so two things coming out of that. Firstly, um, if you would like to give to the bursary uh, fund, you can do that. So maybe you're coming and you think, you know, I'd love to be able to pay for somebody else to come. Or maybe you're not coming because you can't and you think, but I'd like to enable somebody else to come who otherwise couldn't. You can give to the bursary fund. Uh, you can just write on your envelope, uh, bursary fund, soul care or something, just indicate to us that you want it to go to that. Or if you give by tithely online, uh, you'll know there's a drop-down menu that says, you know, general fund, missions, community care. We've created a drop-down uh, or a, a, a thing in the drop-down menu that says scholarship uh, or bursary fund there. So you can give uh, to enable other people to come. The second piece is if you would like to be a recipient of the bursary, um, you just need to come into the church office at some point. You can come on Sunday morning. You can come in during the week and just fill out an application. And uh, you're applying for a bursary. And what it would do is significantly reduce the cost, like quite a lot. Um, and so you can fill out an application. What we'll do is we'll keep the applications. And as funds come in, then we'll give you a call and say, great news, We've, we can cover um, and, and give you the bursary. So just come in and, and register. So uh, that's uh, our, uh, our best effort to make this accessible to as many people as we can uh, because it's a wonderful conference. So, All right, that's that. When massive political shifts happen in uh, a nation or a region, citizens either uh, immediately or, or very soon experience fundamental new realities, right? If you think about the, uh, for those of you who are old enough uh, to remember, and I, and I remember, but if you're uh, much younger than me, you may not remember this, uh, but uh, when the, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, when uh, communism kind of began to fracture and the Iron Curtain fell and the Cold War came to an end, uh, people that were living on the east side of the Berlin Wall were living in what was known as the, uh, the Eastern Bloc. And the Eastern Bloc was under Soviet rule, had been since the end of the Second World War up until the late 80s, early 90s, uh, under Soviet rule. And so essentially was, you were living under communist rule. Uh, people on the west side of the wall were under democracy. And so when the Berlin Wall fell and people could finally uh, freely cross and maybe go and live in, uh, in, in the west side of, of Berlin, the west side of Germany, um, they found themselves living in fundamentally different realities under new laws and new freedoms. They were essentially living in a different kingdom. In the scriptures, we often talk or hear about, and we, in church, we often talk about the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of King Jesus over a kingdom that has both decisively broken into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and is continuing to break its way in uh, into our world and will one day break in in all of its finality and fullness and wonder and beauty. It is a kingdom that is under uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we often also talk about how we live in nations under worldly rulers, and we live uh, as good citizens. We're called to live as good citizens under the rule of law uh, and so on. But we also know that we do live for a different kingdom as well. 
We live uh, for a kingdom that will outlast the kingdoms of this world, one that is an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. And discipleship is essentially, among other things, one way to describe discipleship is to to lean in towards uh, transferring our allegiance from, from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of Jesus as it breaks in continual as the gospel advances. We transfer our allegiance to uh, this new kingdom. It doesn't mean we start to provoke civil unrest. No, we're called to actually live according to the rule of law. We're called to pray for our leaders uh, and so on. But it does mean that we are citizens of the Messiah's kingdom first. Let's read the next part of Mark together. Mark 1, starting at verse 14. Uh, through to 31, if you are following in your Bible. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught they were astounded at, his, astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, throwing him into convulsions and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. God's word to us this morning. Amen. So these uh, past two Sundays, we have been talking about prophetic pronouncements and baptism. Those two themes have come up uh, both weeks. We saw John the Baptist burst onto the scene and declare that people needed to repent and confess their sins and they needed to, to be baptized because the coming one's arrival was imminent. Prepare the way of the Lord was his message. And then he began to baptize them. After 400 years, four centuries of prophetic silence, finally the people of Israel were hearing the voice of God again through a prophet. A voice in the wilderness was sounding and it was telling them to get ready. And then he would baptize them of their sin as they repented and confessed. And then, and this we looked at last Sunday, something shocking happened. The long-awaited Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, came and himself submitted to the baptism of John. He identified with sinful humanity 
and took up the broken down story of Israel. And in that passage, we saw the wonderful words of the father affirming him, saying, this is my son. I love him, or the beloved. With him, I'm well pleased. And we talked about the identity shaping nature of that pronouncement to him and by extension as we're in Christ uh, to us. Today then is all about, okay, so we've talked about this, this repent and, and prepare the way of the king. We've talked about this king coming. We've talked about uh, the, the coming kingdom. But what does the kingdom actually look like? What does it mean that there's a new kingdom here? What is concretely different? Now that I can cross over the wall in Berlin that's fallen, what does it mean now to live on this side? What is different? And, and, and in fact, the whole gospel really answers that. But this passage particularly is helping us to answer that. Well, again, last week we talked about how as Jesus came up out of the waters, the, the, the heavens were ripped open, torn open. And the Spirit came and landed on Jesus as he came up out of the water. So God had come down both now in the person of Jesus at the incarnation and now was coming down again in the person of the Spirit. But it's not the first time the Spirit had done that. There's a number of examples in the Old Testament of where the Spirit would come down and would rest on a specific person for a specific time for a specific purpose. And so uh, this one on Jesus is both similar to those and also different. It is similar because the Spirit was descending upon Jesus of the individual, and it was all about you know, affirming who he was and empowering him for ministry and all those kind of things. It wasn't falling on other people. That'll happen in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the prophet Joel when the Spirit will be poured out on all people. But that's not happening yet. Not at Jesus' baptism. It's only on him. And so in that sense, it's similar to those Old Testament ones where it was, it was on a specific person for a specific purpose. So it's similar, but it's also different. And it's different in a couple of ways. None of those Old Testament ones had the attending voice from heaven saying, this is my son with him I'm well pleased. That didn't happen. That's new. That's different. So that was part of it. And the second part of it, there was, there's, no, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that talks about this idea of the heavens being ripped open, torn open when the Spirit comes down. And I talked to you about the significance of that last week, that if heaven had just opened like a door, well, heaven could be easily closed again. But something that's been ripped and torn, it's hard for it to ever really go back together again. That there's a forceful word with that, that it was almost a violent thing. It's the same verb that's used at the end when Jesus dies and the, and the, the curtain of the temple is torn apart, not to be put back together again. So there's something forceful here. It's about heaven uh, invading earth that I think Mark wants us to see. Heaven being loosed on earth and there's no going back. The kingdom has come and it's not going anywhere. Almost like the wheels of this mighty train have begun to turn and there's not a force on earth or in heaven that you're going to stop it. It will reach the end of the line. It will reach its terminus. And we've seen in our passage, there are certainly forces that would like to stop it but they're powerless before the coming king. So, 
In our passage today, the first thing we see is Jesus goes to Galilee. He wasn't baptized in Galilee. He was baptized in Judea, in the south, in the River Jordan, outside of the city of Jerusalem. Because when John the Baptist was there, people were going out from the city and going into the wilderness to him there. Jesus now travels to the north. So he goes up in the, in the south, you have the Dead Sea and then you have the Jordan River and he's heading up to where the Sea of Galilee is up here. And he, was born, uh, he, he grew up there in Nazareth, just sort of a little bit away from the coast of Galilee. And he's going to spend some time up there and he's going to travel around Galilee and he's going to minister. He's going to go to the villages and the towns and so on. So we have Jesus up here in Galilee. And the first thing he does, according to Mark, is he proclaims himself that the kingdom is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news, Jesus says. The kingdom has come near. To repent is to... Repentance includes guilt and confession and forgiveness and all those kind of things. It includes that. But repentance in and of itself, the word, actually means to turn away. It means to turn away from an existing object of trust. To turn away from trusting in yourself. To turn away from trusting in, in your own sort of selfish way in which you're living. Turn away from a life characterized by sin and unbelief and a world that's maybe oriented around worldly values and so on. So you turn away and you continue to do that. To believe then, to believe in, is to turn towards an object of faith. The Lord Jesus. So we turn away from an object of trust towards a new object of faith in the person of the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe. That is what somebody does when they convert to Christianity and become a follower. So Jesus is preaching for people to turn away from a world in which there is only darkness and pain and it leads to death and turn towards him the only giver of true life and light. That's the good news. That's the gospel. A new kingdom has arrived. Turn towards this. Live for this. He then uh, calls some of the disciples. I'm not going to say a ton about the disciples today, only because um, we're going to do that in a, in a couple of chapters when he calls the 12. Uh, but what he does here is um, essentially we have a new king proclaiming a new kingdom and then gathering followers. And followers who recognize something in Jesus and are willing to give up everything they know in order to follow him and his proclamation. Uh, often when a king would come on the throne in ancient Israel, and in fact, in any nation throughout history, is they would gather then, once they get seated on the throne, they would gather followers around them, people who they were going to support them and, and, and follow them and help them lead. And it happens in modern politics. As soon as a prime minister is appointed or a president's appointed, what do they do? They, they, they form a, a cabinet out of, out of their party, and they're going to pick people that they think are going to support them and help them and, uh, and help them get policies through and laws through and so on and help them to lead and to govern. That's what leaders do. They gather people around them. And so that's what Jesus is doing. And I think uh, it says a few things for us. One, it tells us the importance of community, I think. For Jesus, it's important. He wanted to shape these people and he wanted to live with community. We need each other. Secondly, it's an absolute statement that he's the king and he's gathering his courtiers. And thirdly, Jesus will eventually choose 12 disciples. Here he only 
calls Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, but he will choose 12. And that is a provocative statement. That's a provocative thing that Jesus is doing. He's gathering 12 men around him who are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reconstituted Israel around Jesus. Remember, I, I've said a number of times that he was kick-starting the story of Israel. He was taking up the story of Israel that had floundered and failed and they're in exile. He's taking up that story in himself and he's going to fulfill it because humans can't fulfill it. In the wilderness, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence was. It was a place where heaven and earth touched one another in the Holy of Holies. It's where God took up residence on earth. And quite literally, and you can read this in the book of Exodus and Numbers and different places, the 12 tribes would, would camp around the tabernacle. It was the central focus. Three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. And every time they had to move, there was a marching order that they would follow. Here's Jesus calling 12 disciples who were literally following him around the Holy Land. He was taking up the story of Israel. This is a provocative statement. So, back to our question. What does the kingdom coming look like? What does it mean? What are the new realities? What's different? Well, first of all, it means there is a new authority on earth now that wasn't there before. With the new king comes a new authority. So the disciples, after Jesus has gone up to Galilee with them and he's beginning to uh, proclaim to the, the, city, the towns and the villages of Galilee, uh, repent and believe, he goes to Capernaum on this particular day and he goes into the synagogue and he stands up to teach in the synagogue. And as he does, the passage says that the people were astounded at the authority that he has as he taught, not like the scribes and the Pharisees and so on who would, who would regularly teach, the teachers of the law. What does a teaching with authority mean? What does that actually mean? Well, I think what it means, on the, on, the, on the one hand, I think what it means is that the regular teachers of the law, the regular scribes and Pharisees and so on that would get up and teach, um, what they would do is they would appeal to external authorities. Often they would say, according to Moses, blah, 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 blah. According to Rabbi so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. They would, uh, they would often appeal to these authorities and teach from it. Where well, Jesus comes, and he's not appealing necessarily to authority, but he's, he's coming with a compelling authority uh, of his own. And it's not that he didn't use the scriptures. He did, the Old Testament. Remember the one example where he gets a scroll and he, and he, and he unrolls it and he reads from, from the prophet Isaiah and he says, he says you know, um, uh, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to uh, release the captives and set the prisoners free and declare the day of the Lord's favor. Like, he does that. He reads from the, the, the prophecy. And that's probably been read from for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's not the first one to do that. Except what does he say? This scripture has now been fulfilled in your hearing. It points to me. I'm the authority. I think that Jesus teaching from an authority, a new king of a new kingdom, it was plain to see as he got up to teach, and I think the people could just probably feel it in the room. They just knew it was authoritative. So firstly, uh, it comes with an authority. Secondly, Jesus the Messiah extended that authority. 
So it didn't only show up when he taught, but it also showed up when he exercised that power and that authority over the unseen realm in our passage. As Jesus stood up in that synagogue, it wasn't only the human listeners that were astounded at the authority, but demonic forces from the unseen realm responded to the fact that he was present. They recognized him and they reacted. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. The evil spirit was controlling that man in the synagogue. It was, it was inhabiting him. It was controlling and demonizing him. And all of a sudden, it reacted to the presence of Jesus and it burst out. And what's fascinating is that most often humans take a long time to catch on to the identity of Jesus, don't they? We're a little bit slow to pick up. And often in the, in the Bible, often it's slow to pick it up. The demons know exactly who he is. You don't need to convince them. They know exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't engage in some huge fight. It's not a big battle. Jesus isn't nervous. I wonder if I'm going to win this one. He just silences it. doesn't make a big deal. He just says, shut up. <laughs> Get out. And it's gone. And it has to because of his authority. So when he teaches, he's authoritative. And when he addresses the unseen realm, he's authoritative. And he has all power. One of the many things that I love about Jesus is that he was a non-anxious leader. He never seemed nervous. He never seemed worried. He never seemed insecure. He showed emotion. He was deeply moved at times. But I don't think he was an anxious uh, leader. And I think the big reason he wasn't an anxious leader was because he knew who he was. Last week, we read about the father affirming to him who he was, speaking identity over, you're my son, the beloved. I'm so pleased with you. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't need to impress people. I think any other human would be like, this is cool. The crowds are following me. Let's put on a few more tour dates. Jesus isn't interested. He, sometimes he's like, no, I'm going to go up onto the hill and I'm going to just be alone and pray with the Father. Like he wasn't, inter- he wasn't, a, wasn't an anxious leader, wasn't trying to build anything. He was just doing what the Father told him to do. He was just living as the Father told him to live. He's obedient to the Father and he just lived out of this natural authority that came from who he was and who he knew himself to be. Oh, church family, if only we can grapple with our identity and wrestle it to the floor and start to live from who we know we truly are, we'll become a lot less anxious. We can live from that settled place with an authority that flows through our union with Jesus. Do you notice the first place we meet a demon in the Gospel of Mark is in the synagogue. It's not in a Roman brothel where you might expect it to be. It's not in a pagan temple to the goddess Diana or to the Roman god Jupiter where you would expect it to be. It's not in the halls of power of Caesar where you would expect it to be. There were certainly demons in all those places, absolutely. No, it's in church. It's in the place that is dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, and a a demon is there. What? That's not where we thought it would be. 
Well, partly I think it shows you the condition of the covenant people and, and, and where they'd landed, but also, wait a second, that's exactly where we'd expect it to be. Those other places are not necessarily a threat to the kingdom. Church is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Absolutely, the demon shows up at the synagogue. The demon shows up at church. Um, one of the, one of the one of my uh, one of my most regular prayers on a Sunday morning. I get here early, and one of the things that I pray not probably not every Sunday, but one of the things I regularly pray. And I prayed it this morning. I was actually actually prayed it before I got to the church. I was sitting on the corner of um, uh, Hillcrest and Gladwin. Just the uh, the light was red, and I just sat there. And, and I could see from there, I could see the whole property, right? And one of the things I pray regularly is, Lord, would you send your angels to 2575 Gladwin Road to stand at the four corners of our property with drawn sword in the name of Jesus? And would you do that so that the people of God, when we come to worship, we can do so freely? That's a prayer I think everyone should pray. Because there's stuff in the unseen realm going on that we have no idea we have to believe it, that it's going on, and we should be praying uh, to those ends. Um, in the early days of the church, and, and still many churches today, when people are baptized, they'll say things like, I renounce Satan and all his works. It's part of the baptismal liturgy of certain churches. And sometimes it's just empty, little bit empty words, right? Sometimes it's just, well, that's just what we say at baptism, and they just do that. But actually, there, there is a history to it. There's a history to it that, that includes some form of deliverance-type ministry for people when they convert to Jesus. People would come to faith in Christ, and before they got baptized, would go through some kind of maybe catechism where they'd learn the scriptures and learn how to pray and learn theology and, and be discipled and, and all of these kind of things. And sometimes as well, they would go into some significant cleanup-type ministry from their old way of life including some form of deliverance ministry. And, and it doesn't mean that they are possessed necessarily, but it just means that they probably have some baggage, and it may include some spiritual baggage. And of course, if we go right back to the early church, people were converting from what? They were converting from pagan lifestyles where they had worshipped in pagan temples. Of course they were demonized. Of course they needed deliverance as part of their conversion to Jesus. My point is this, in, 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 the, West, in the Western world, with, with our kind of Western rationalization, rationalism and, and enlightenment thought for the last few hundred years, where many people look at angels and demons and just think that's, all, oh, that's just fairy tale stuff. That's how pre-modern people explained a bunch of stuff that we can now explain because we have science. So in our Western rationalism, the church then has moved away from a lot of spiritual warfare type ministry. And we've become all about study in the mind. What we do is we just study and we've lost something. And so typically we'll witness to somebody, they'll come to faith in Jesus, we'll get them to attend church and maybe join a, a small group, we'll teach them how to pray and read the Bible and then they can serve in church. Or go back a couple of decades, we'll take them to a Billy Graham conference, so they'll get saved, and then we'll you know, bring them into the church, and we'll, we'll help get them discipled, and, and, and then they can serve in the church. There's nothing wrong with anything I just said. That's all good. It's all wonderful. It's all needed. We should all be doing that, except we miss something. We miss a step. 
We ignore the fact that they probably have some spiritual baggage. They probably have some soul baggage. They probably have some emotional baggage. They may well have mental baggage. And so, in my opinion, the Western church, including the Canadian church, the pews are filled with people who carry a lot of baggage because we haven't done a good enough job of cleaning up. Because we've, we've just abandoned this type of ministry. We need to do a better job. The final part then of what it means, so we've seen what, is, what does the kingdom mean? Well, there's a new authority that comes and there's a, there's a new power over things that we were powerless to, be power over, to have power over anymore. And there's a third thing that sometimes people get healed. In our story, Jesus and the disciples go to Peter's house and his mother-in-law is there and she's got a fever and he just takes her by the hand and she gets up and, and, uh, and she's healed. Now, not everybody gets healed when we pray for them. We know that. And there's mystery to that. There's often pain attached to that and questions and we don't understand. And it's hard. But one thing we can say is that it's like a sign of the inbreaking kingdom. I've talked to you many times before about how uh, there's a thin veil that exists between us and our, our realm of existence and everything that we can touch and feel and smell and taste and, and the unseen realm, God's realm. There's this thin veil. And at times it seems like that, that veil gets a little bit thinner when we're, when we're worshiping Jesus. And there are times when it gets punctured. And when somebody gets healed, it's been punctured. And something from an age to come has come through into our age. Some blessing from a future age has come back in history as a down payment and a deposit and a sign, a signpost pointing towards the age to come. It's like we get a little slice of heaven, a little taste of heaven when that happens. And so we get, a, we get a, a whisper of an age to come. And what we've been told is that when that age finally arrives in all of its fullness and completeness, that healing, that, that fever leaving Peter's mother-in-law will become widespread and full and all pervasive. There will be no more fever and no more sickness and no more pain and no more injury. The kingdom will have come in all of its beautiful perfection. And here you go, have a little taste. That's what it's going to be like. It's a sign of the inbreaking kingdom. And it's a blessing to the person who's received the healing, of course. So back to our original question. What does the kingdom look like? What does it mean now that I live in a different kingdom? Well, it means a new authority. The people in the synagogue experienced the teaching that was authoritative and were astounded. The king had come. It means that that authority has been extended to the unseen realm. The new king has arrived and it was a direct threat to the prince of this world. Satan's realm has been routed. And Jesus defeated him at the temptation. And Jesus continues to defeat him throughout in people's lives. And Jesus decisively defeated him at the cross. And the implementation of all of that will happen one day in all of its fullness and all of its wonder and all of its beauty. But right now, he says... All authority has been given to me and I give it to you. We can exercise our authority as well. And the kingdom comes means an end to suffering and signs abound throughout Mark's gospel. There's a lot of healings in Mark's gospel and throughout history up until this day also. When healing comes, it's a taste 
now of what ultimately will happen in the age to come. I have two uh, applications for you. Uh, number one, let me encourage you to consider attending this Soul Care Conference. Um, uh, I, we're not just putting it on for fun. There's a reason we're putting it on. Um, and I wouldn't bring anything to this church I didn't think was really, really valuable. Uh, so let me encourage you. Um, we've talked today about carrying mental, emotional, spiritual baggage, and I would suggest that everybody that is sitting on a chair today has some form of baggage. We all carry it. We all carry it. Sorry, I didn't mean to say because I'm not sitting that I don't have any. <laughs> I, should, I should sit on a stool or something. I do as well, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that sounded awful. Um, I have it as well. We all have it. <laughs> Um, soul care is a fantastic discipleship tool and a discipleship pathway that helps us to dig a little deeper into some of that stuff that Jesus wants to free us from. It truly is a transformational experience, and I uh, hope that uh, you consider signing up because when we get free of some of that stuff and when we actually take time, because you know, we're all so busy, we actually take time to dig in a little deeper together, we can actually find greater peace and freedom in our lives, and the more we make room for God, the more we can receive of God, and the more we can receive of Jesus. So let me encourage you to go and register. Secondly, let me encourage you to reflect on what it means to continue in your life on a journey of transferring your allegiance from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God. What does that look like for you? The crux of discipleship is learning to continually repent and believe. Now, yes, repent and believe is something somebody does at conversion, but I want to say we have to continually do it because we have to continually confess. So we have to continually turn away from uh, whatever we're putting our trust in, whether it's ourselves, whether it's our career, whether it's money, whether it's a relationship, whatever it is, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we continue to put our trust into that and we need to just release that and we need to turn again and believe in the Lord Jesus and put him first. It's all about ordering of priorities. Make sure Jesus is first. So are there things that have become front and center in your life, even perhaps slightly idolatrous? That's pulling your affections away from Jesus. All right. Amen. Worship team, come. We're going to continue to worship together this morning.